0: The book of Exodus, chapter 17, we'll begin in verse 1 in just a moment. I again want to review, and we've done this several times, um, but the stops along the way that Israel takes in this journey are fascinating to me, and they teach us a lot. They show us many things, things that uh, I I didn't expect to see. And again, if if you just do a cursory reading of the book of Exodus, what you discover in this book is these names of these places, but it's so easy just to skip right by them and to miss the depth of of the meaning of what's actually going on. Um, I'd like you to flip in your Bibles real quickly to Hebrews chapter 12. Keep your finger in Exodus 17. But Hebrews chapter 12... And verse 4, now actually, let's do this. Keep your finger there. Hebrews 12.4, we'll get there in just a second. And your other finger in Exodus, and we'll come right back to that. But just a reminder of the stops that, that Israel has made along the way. Since they left Egypt, we, we see them leaving Egypt and immediately going to Sukkot. Sukkot, which you may recall, means tent town. Which is a great first stop because it reminded them that they're sojourners. That this whole life that they were stepping into with God for the first time, they begin at Tent Town. They don't end there. It's not somewhere along the journey. It is the focus of their journey. They are going to be sojourners. And so they go to Sukkoth, And then after Sukkoth, they go to Etham. Right there on the edge of the wilderness, you may recall, Etham means with them. And it, it was a place where as they were about to step out Into this very difficult journey A reminder that God was with them Then from there, the Lord led them And each time, remember, the Lord led them He led them to Sukkoth He led them to Etham Now he leads them to Pihahiroth and Migdol, Boxed in at the Red Sea And we've talked quite a bit about that How they were trapped there, literally But gang, they were led there by the Lord He's the one, he set them up he really did. Well, from there they leave the Red Sea. They cross the Red Sea miraculously, and each time God leaves them into a tight spot and brings them out the other side. Then he takes them to Mara, to Mara, not tomorrow, but tomorrow, the, the the place. And it's, it Mara means bitterness. And so they've been wandering three days in the desert. They're dying of thirst. And as we talked about Sunday, they come to this place called Mara. I believe it's what they called it because the water there was bitter. Man, they're thirsty. They, they need a drink. And what the Lord does is not lead them to fresh water. He leads them to bitter water. Why would God do that? Well, as you know in the story, He immediately shows them a tree. And Moses takes that tree and throws it into the water of Mara, and it becomes sweet and drinkable. So once again, God says, Hey, it's not about you, it's about me. I am the leader here. Well, from Mara they went to Elim. Elim means mighty ones or mighty trees. And it was a beautiful place, a nice oasis. After all the trouble they've been through, it was kind of a nice break. And God was doing that. And we'll do that from time to time in our lives. Give us a break. Give us a Sabbath, a season of rest. From Elim... They then head out into the wilderness of sin. And we looked closely at that on Sunday. That's where they first saw the manna, the bread from heaven. First they're thirsty and they come to Marah, bitterness, and then God makes the water sweet. Then they're out in the wilderness and they're hungry in the wilderness of sin. They complain in that wilderness and God gives them manna. And as we talked about on Sunday, when Jesus says, give us this day, our daily bread... He's not talking about bread. He's talking about the Word. He's talking about the Spirit. He's talking about that daily sustenance that God provides. I got an email that I just read about a half an hour ago from a new couple that had been coming to the bridge about three or four weeks. And the wife was writing the email and was responding to one that I had written. And you may remember this a couple emails back right after the first of the year just talking about our need to be in the Word every day and, and what that does for us and what it does for me, how much it changes my whole worldview, just being there with the Lord in His Word, hearing from the Lord. And she wrote in this email that with, with three small kids, it, it was challenging, it was hard, and so she had been giving herself an extra 45 minutes of sleep in the morning. But she said as she began to shift back to getting up early to be in the Word before she started her day, she found that she was more rested, she found that she had a, a greater tolerance, that she was less stressed out, and then she could meet the needs of her family better. So God does that in giving us his daily word, the manna from heaven. But again, the interesting thing to note is that God keeps leading Israel into tough spots. He keeps leading them into hard places. And you might ask, well, Rick, do you really believe that? I mean, do you really believe that God is leading them into those hard places? And my answer is absolutely. Yes, I believe that. Now, I didn't always and you may maybe like me. I used to believe that God allowed tough things, but God doesn't cause tough things. That's not, that's not right. That doesn't jive with, with a God of grace and a God of love. How can He draw us into hard situations? That's not what God does, is it? But again, the older I get, the more I am convinced that God orchestrates hard situations in our lives. Not, not to play with us. It. Not like you know, the Greek view of, of the god Zeus, who sits up on, on the, the top of Mount Olympus and just throws down problems and toys with humans. That's not what I'm talking about. And he doesn't give us hardship to tempt us to fall. The Bible clearly says the Lord doesn't tempt anyone. But I believe that the Lord leads us into, orchestrates hardships to teach us to follow. To teach us to follow. And that's what he's doing with Israel. From one tight spot into another and then rescue once they're in that tight spot. And in every situation, they're following him a little more. With a little more trust and a little more assurance that he truly is their God. Hebrews chapter 12 now. In verse 4. The Hebrew writer says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Listen to this. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline, great verse, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." God disciplines those whom He loves. Show me a parent that does not care enough about their child to discipline them, and I'll show you a parent who truly doesn't love their child. If there's no discipline, if the child runs wild and there's no direction, no no guidelines, no reinforcement of those things, there's no love. But our Father disciplines us, loves us, because He wants us to bear greater fruit later on. And it's the same way with Israel. That Greek word there, by the way, for discipline is literally to train or teach through difficulty. And that's the point. Israel's already been out in the desert a month and a half, two months, and they've gone through several difficulties. Seven of them, I count, including the one we're going to look at in just a moment here. Seven difficulties out in the wilderness. And why? Because God is disciplining his sons, teaching them through hard times to remind them that he loves him and that he is their God. Well, let's follow Israel into the seventh stop along the journey. Exodus chapter 17. Beginning in verse 1. Exodus 17, 1 says, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages. That's interesting that it's worded that way. Literally, it means they journeyed in their journeyings, but it indicates that there were several stops along the way, teaching points, moments where God said, hold up, you've got something to learn and it's going to happen right here. They journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord. And there you go, the command of the Lord. He was the one leading them step by step every place they went. It was his call, not theirs. They didn't accidentally get backed up to the Red Sea. They didn't nonchalantly and accidentally run into Mara, bitter waters. No God led them there. Every place they went, they had been led by the Lord. There's no doubt about that. And the Bible says they camped. Now number seven, and we've done uh, six campsites so far. Seventh campsite is Rephidim. Rephidim. Rephidim literally means rest stop. You know, like along the highway, when you're driving down the highway and you pull off because there's a rest stop there, you need to go to the bathroom, you need to drink water or something. Rest stop. So here comes Israel, this mass group of people, they're traveling through the wilderness and they come to rest stop. And God says, Pull over. You got something to learn here. Pull over. I want to teach you something new. Now, You've all been to rest stops along the highway, I'm sure. I'm not sure if you've all been to frustrating rest stops. Those are the ones that you pull over in the car, get out of the car, go to the drinking fountain and crank it and nothing happens. Or run around to the bathroom in somewhat of a rush and the door is locked. That's the worst. What kind of a rest stop is that? Well, it's a rest stop similar to the rest stop that Israel is about to experience. They come to Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. God says, okay, stop here. Pitch your tents. Camp. It's time to relax. And people start to look for water. And there isn't any water. Now, they've just come from the bitter water turned sweet. They've just drank their fill. They've been in this wonderful oasis. You'd think they'd know by now God is going to do something. Well, they begin to grumble. Verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Goodness, how long is it going to take before they begin to clue in? That's not in the Bibles. I added that myself. Verse 4, So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people a little more, (laughs) and they will stone me? Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Horeb is also, by the way, Sinai. And you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people, may, the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah, which means temptation, and Merivah, which means quarreling. Because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested or tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Okay, so here's the picture. Once again, the people are thirsty. But look at what happens. And this is just absolutely stunning. It's another one of these amazing symbols, pictures, portraits in the Bible. First off, God says to Moses, take your rod and the rod that you used to strike the Nile. Can you remember the rod that we're talking about there? The rod that Moses put down in the water of the Nile and blood grew across the Nile River. Then he says, strike the rock here at Horeb with that same rod. So use the rod that you used on the Nile, strike the rock. And thirdly, he says, out of the rock will flow water. Water. What's the interpretation of the story? Well, we don't even have to guess. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Paul tells us the interpretation of the story. He tells us what this was a picture of even way back then. I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food. He's talking about the manna. And all drank the same spiritual drink listen he says for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was christ the rock was christ so yet again we see another picture of jesus at our elders meeting last night we were talking about this that as we go through the bible every time we open the pages of scripture we should see jesus if in fact jesus came as the incarnate word then as we read the word of god we should see jesus on every page he should jump out at us. And I believe we have so far. He is everywhere. And here Paul tells us, back here, this rocket horror it's a picture of Christ. It's Jesus. How is it a picture of Christ? Think back about this. Think back to this rod. What did the rod do? What is the rod famous for? Before the Nile River, going back a little bit further, as God said, Moses, I want you to take your staff, your rod with you. What was the first thing That the rod did Or the first thing that happened with the rod It turned into a snake A serpent A serpent So what God is saying here is Strike the rock With the rod that became a serpent Strike the rock with the serpent Does that start to ring a bell for you? Remember, Jesus said, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. It's all about me. And throughout scripture, Christ is called the rock. Psalm 31, verse 2, incline your ear to me, rescue me quickly, to me, be a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. Psalm 61, verse 1, the psalmist writes, Hear my cry, O God, and give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings Christ is the rock Jesus is the rock but the bible declares that the serpent will strike the rock which is exactly what we see in this amazing picture strike the rock with the rod that became a serpent that serpentine rod and so Moses does so and in that moment acts out In a very powerful way, exactly what would happen at the crucifixion of Jesus. Think back again, further back to Genesis chapter 3.15. I've mentioned this so much, it's such a key verse in scripture, and it's the Proto-Evangelicum. That first gospel, first time in the Bible, first time in all of history where God reveals there's a plan in motion here. And it's in that verse that God says to the serpent, to Satan, He says, He, the Messiah, shall bruise or crush you on the head, and you shall shall bruise him on the heel the serpent would strike the rock did the serpent strike the rock was Jesus struck on the heel you bet he was how much more evident can it be was Jesus bruised on the heel I would say so as the spike went through his feet bruised on the heel on the top of his foot on the sides all the way up his calves the bruising must have been horrific as he was driven onto the cross And when a lone soldier, think about this, when a lone soldier drove a spear into Jesus' side, what were the two things that flowed out? Blood and water. Strike the rock with the rod that was the serpent. As you strike the rock, what's going to flow out of the rock? Water. Water. A picture again of the living water. That comes from the life that Jesus gave on the cross after he died. We talked about this on Sunday. The gift of the Holy Spirit. The coming of the living water. That Jesus said, it's better for me, it's better for you if if I go away. Because if I go away, I'm going to send the Helper to you. And if anyone comes to me and believes in me, he says in John chapter 7 and also in John chapter 4, out of that person, living waters will flow. The waters of the Holy Spirit. God gives the people some amazing things on this journey so far. He takes the Israel Israel from the sweet waters and shady palms of Elim. He leads them into the wilderness and into starvation. He gives them the satisfaction of manna only to have them camp now in a dry, hot and thirsty place with no water. And while this is a real, is a real trip for Israel, it's a real teaching for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 11 Paul says now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom and I love this upon whom the ends of the ages have come Paul says those of you at the end those of us in the end of the ages will look back on the things that happened to Israel and all of history and they will be example for what we need to know what happened to them the striking of the rock couple more things here God is doing something with Israel not just giving these amazing pictures that we can look at in Bible study and go wow that's another portrait of Christ yes he's doing that for us but he's working on Israel the manna representing that incarnation of God of Christ Rephidim picturing I believe it's the state of the world what better picture do we have for the world we live in than a rest stop in which the bathrooms are locked and the drinking fountains don't work You come to the place, you want rest, you seek rest in this world, and outside of Christ you can't get it. All you can get is stress. The door is locked. All you can get is thirst. I can't get the drinking fountain to work. I cannot find satisfaction in this world. It's Rephidim. The rest stop that is truly not a rest stop without the Lord Jesus. It's the state of the world or life without Christ and then that rock was struck representing again the crucifixion. What is God doing here with Israel? Going from one hardship to another, one place of hunger to another, one place of thirst to another. God is creating, I believe, a greater and greater hunger and thirst for him. He is leading them into this place where they realize they cannot even survive if not for him. But why would God need to deepen their thirst? Because here at Rephidim, and this is what I want you to hear before we go into prayer tonight, here at Rephidim, something else is about to happen, something that Israel hasn't planned for, something Israel hasn't even thought about, something that will be a complete surprise to them, but that God knows is coming. And before it comes, God proactively works, God proactively works actively prepares and develops and stirs up his people to be ready when the challenge, the real challenge, comes. Again, John 7.37 tells us, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And Zechariah 4.6 tells us, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. By my spirit. By my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I will provide water from the rock for you to drink before the real trial hits. Well, what is that? What's about to happen? Look at verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. What Israel couldn't see, what they couldn't fathom, they had no idea about, was that they were about to go to war. It was about to all come down. This would be at Rephidim against Amalek, the first battle of Israel, the first fight. Now, if you think of Israel as a a great warring nation called by God to go into Canaan, they were, but that's far later. Right now, they're a wimpy, whining, grumbling, complaining group of people, confused, lost, not sure who to follow, just starting to learn about the grace of God, just starting to see and experience His strength, and they're about to go to war against Amalek. I believe that God is setting them up, teaching them, preparing them for when the hard stuff really hits, when the evil really comes, when the attacks actually fall. And so he brings them to Rephidim, a waterless rest stop, to remind them once again that he is the source, that he is the living water, that he is their strength. And it's the same for you and I. I was studying through these things um, he can come on up here? I was studying through these things yesterday And I actually got through the whole chapter And, and was excited to share The whole battle with Amalek We're going to look at that on Sunday morning But as I got down to the end of the study Yesterday afternoon And I was laying these things out And thinking about tonight it, there, there was a, a, literally a tapping on my heart That was going on all day long And it wasn't until I finished the study That I recognized what it was The Lord was saying I need you to stop at Rephidim I need you as the bridge to stop. You don't need to do an hour-long you know, study tonight. You need to stop and pray. And I began thinking about this, and, and I was praying, saying, Lord, what, what, do you, what do we need to pray for? Things are actually going really well right now. I mean, I know there are different ones of us that, that have different struggles, and we're praying for that, but but as a body, you, what what's going on? And the reality hit me. In the same way that Israel had to come to a place... Of being prepared Of receiving living water Before Before the battle came So I believe God wants us To pray proactively Not reactively Reactive prayer is typically how we pray For most of us You know something happens and we pray A tragedy strikes and we pray A worrisome thing comes on the horizon And we begin to pray God wants us I think to learn To be proactive in our prayer To pray before the battle To pray before we even know about the battle Now I'm not saying, as I said, if you saw the email I sent out, I'm not saying that that we're about to hit a battle. There are some tough waters coming. I, I don't see anything on the horizon that looks negative or dangerous or frightening. But neither did Israel. Neither did they.